You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. 24 hours after returning from an historic visit to Israel, President Biden delivered a powerful Oval Office address last night, making the case to the American people why support for Israel and you, support for Israel against Hamas and Ukraine against Putin was vital to national security. Joining me, wa- joining me right now, Washington Post White House reporter Tyler Pager, who made the trip with the president on October 18th to Israel. Tyler, welcome to First Look. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. How you're awake given that travel schedule right now is beyond me, but I'll take it. Uh, before, before we talk, Tyler, let's listen to a key portion of the president's speech last night. History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going. And the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So, Tyler, why did the president feel it necessary to make this Oval Office address? And who were the audiences he was trying to reach? Yeah, so before the Hamas attack in Israel, the president had been planning this big speech on Ukraine. He wants more funding, and that has gotten caught up in politicking on Capitol Hill. Republicans, particularly in the House, have not shown as much appetite for a big supplemental package for Ukraine. So before this war broke out in Israel, there had always been a plan for a big speech aimed at Republicans, but also the American people, to defend spending more money to support Ukraine in their fight against Russia. Then the war in Israel broke out, and the president and his aides saw an opportunity to group these two conflicts together to make a larger argument about America's role in the world and why the American people should be okay spending billions of dollars to support conflicts that America is not directly involved in. So the audience here is obviously congressional Republicans who he wants to support the to vote for these massive spending packages, but also the American people as support for U.S. Uh, aid for Ukraine and, uh, and Israel uh, wanes a little bit. And and was also maybe another audience uh, the the international stage, meaning foreign leaders who are looking at Washington right now and wondering. What on earth is going on over there? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, a critical component of this is the coalition that the U.S. has put together to support Ukraine in particular. Obviously, the the world is still responding to the initial uh, attack in Israel and the fallout from that. But the U.S. has been a leader in this effort to fund aid for Ukraine. And there's also uh, leaders and and citizens in foreign capitals around the world whose interest in continuing to do this um, and pay an economic price because of the sanctions and and other efforts uh, is waning. And so I think the president, you're exactly right, had a wide audience that he was trying to reach last night and really make the case that this is in everyone's interest, the Western world's interest, to ensure that Ukraine can defend itself and Israel has what it needs to defend itself um, from Hamas. So, Tyler, as I mentioned in the intro, you were on that trip, the president's trip on Wednesday to Israel. How how much of an impact did that have, especially meeting with families there, uh, have on him? 
Yeah, I think that was a significant part of the trip. Obviously, he met with Netanyahu and other Israeli leaders to discuss the response um, and really press them uh, on, on, a, on a range of issues, including humani uh, allowing humanitarian aid to get into Gaza, but also what their plans were for a potential ground invasion um, and what they are, are planning to do militarily. But then, uh, as you noted, and, and I was standing right there as he met with people directly impacted by the 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 attacks uh, at that music festival um, and, and in the last few weeks, um, and that was very moving for him. We saw him get quite emotional as people described either hiding for hours while Hamas was attacking their kibbutz um, or fighting back. Um, and this is something that the president has done time and time again, try to comfort people going through unimaginable tragedy. Um, and so I think we saw him, you know, play that uh, role that he so often does, meeting with people after a mass shooting or a natural disaster or, or an attack like this. Right. The consoler in chief. Um, the president was supposed to meet uh, with the king of Jordan and, and the president uh, of, of Egypt uh, during that trip. But those leaders canceled. Uh, those meetings after initial reports said Israel bombed that Gaza hospital. Uh, and the president made a point in a speech last night uh, pushing back on, on that notion. Were U.S. officials surprised that those leaders canceled the meeting? I think they understood. I mean, it was really a remarkable moment, Jonathan. We were standing uh, on Air Force One about to take off for Israel, and there was these reports that the Jordanian foreign minister told um, reporters that the summit was off and we were about to leave. Presidential foreign trips are usually very uh, planned out to the minute, and there's no really wiggle room there. And so it was just this remarkable moment where top White House officials came back to the press cabin on the plane and dictated us a statement about the summit being canceled just as we're about to take off from Israel. But in, in subsequent conversations with White House officials, they said that, you know, there was disappointment that that meeting would not go on. They felt it was important to talk to, obviously, the Israelis, but also to the other Arab leaders, um, but that they understood, particularly the leader of the Palestinian Authority, saying he was uh, entering three days of mourning and not going to travel to Amman. Obviously, he is a critical player in, in trying to resolve this conflict. So, I, you know, the moment itself was remarkable, but I think the, the response was not wholly surprising to U.S. officials, mm -hmm. given uh, what happened in Gaza. Title, let me get you on two things before I, before I have to let you go. Um, you know, the president strongly in his speech, as I mentioned a moment ago, denied the accusations that uh, by Hamas that Israel was responsible for bombing that hospital. Does the White House believe hammering away at that point uh, will tamp down the anger that's erupted in the Arab world? Off to off to my side, I'm I'm looking at live footage coming from Ramallah where there are protests ongoing. Yeah, I think the president wants to make that point clear because the U.S., as he has said when we were in Tel Aviv, has intelligence that suggests Israel was not behind the attack. I don't think that they're expecting the president's remarks uh, to really change the mood across the Middle East. We have seen um, protests around the region, as you said, in Ramallah, but also in Jordan and other uh, you know, countries in the area. Um, I think there is still some skepticism in that part of the world about who was responsible for this this blast. Um, I think the president wants to make clear what the intelligence the U.S. has, but whether that really has an impact on the ground, I think they're a realistic and clear-eyed about the limitations there. Mm -hmm. And switching gears for this last question, uh, the continuing resolution ends in 28 calendar days. Um, the House 
is slated to be in session for just nine of them. So are White House officials expressing alarm or starting to express alarm over the intra-party Republican fight to elect a speaker? Yeah, we asked the president about that as we were refueling in Ramstein Air Base when he came back to announce this aid, uh, the beginning of this aid deal with Egypt. And he said his heart aches for Jim Jordan um, and, you know, jokingly and then said he didn't really have any further comment. I think there's always some anxiety in the administration about the ability to work with Republicans to fund the government. Um, I think that is pronounced as the Republicans still don't have a speaker to reopen the House for business and get some of these packages done. Um, you know, I think they're hopeful that that uh, will come to a resolution in the coming days. But it's, you know, as you said, it's the government funding, but it's also the supplemental aid package that the president just announced last night. These are things that the U.S. government and the White House want to get passed, and they cannot do that until there is a speaker of the House. Um, they're trying to stay away, not get involved. Privately, I think uh, White House officials concede this is good for Democrats, the infighting um, among the Republicans. But at the end of the day, they need the Republicans to be able to pass some of these packages that they say are critical. Right. And I don't anticipate the White House saying anything publicly about what's going on in the House. However, um, privately, in, in any discussions, have you heard any conversations expressing interest or support for the notion that Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry should be empowered to do more than just facilitate the election of, of the next speaker, give, give the Speaker Pro Tem the power to actually move legislation through, such as a continuing resolution and aid to Israel and Ukraine. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think White House officials are not really trying to get involved in this at this point. I think they want to see this process play out and hope it resolves itself. Um, whether or not they, I think the president and his aides are very careful not to weigh in. As I said earlier, I think they feel that this infighting paints a good contrast for Democrats, that Democrats are the party that's trying to govern and Republicans are unable to figure out leadership on their own. Um, whether that that narrative starts to shift, I think uh, we'll be watching for if this process continues to drag out and we move even closer to those government funding deadlines. And I think also on the, the aid package, if the Senate passes that package pretty quickly and it's just sort of floundering without uh, a House speaker, I think we could see more pressure from the White House to try to come to a resolution, but we have not seen that just quite yet. Right, 28 calendar days, nine legislative days in the House. Washington Post White House reporter Tyler Pager, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Get some sleep, have a good weekend. Thanks so much, Jonathan. We're gonna keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnist and editorial board member Shadi Hamid and Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. Shadi, Josh, welcome to First Look. Great to be with you. So, Shadi, your, your view of both President Biden's trip to Israel on Wednesday and his Oval Office speech on Thursday, did they accomplish what the administration hoped, hoped they would? Shadi, I think you're muted. Okay, so, uh, sorry, Jonathan. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, it depends like which audiences are most important. Um, 
I think in talking to Americans, it was a good message. We'll have to wait and see if Republicans and skeptics of America's role ab abroad are going to go along with it. But I, I do think it's as good as I probably would have expected. I was glad to see that Biden actually did talk about the plight of the Gazans. I mean, that's something I've been very concerned about, about the U.S. appearing to be so much on one side and not as cognizant of pal the Palestinian Palestinian grievances in Gaza, especially as Gaza is being bombarded and the number of dead is rising well above uh, 3,000 now, a million displaced. So there, it was good that Biden did emphasize the agreement on getting aid into Gaza. But if if the Arab world um, is one of the audiences, I just don't think that's going to matter as much. And we can talk more about that. But there's nothing really the U.S. can do, I think, at this point to really um, tamp down sentiment. Um, it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Joshua, I'd love your view on this, but also talk about why you wrote this week that Russian President Vladimir Putin is helping Hamas in order to weaken the West. Right. Well, I think following on the theme from President Biden's speech last night, you know, he's putting this in the frame of great power competition because it is related to the overall struggle between a group of countries, Russia, Iran, China, to a lesser extent, North Korea, uh, who are meeting right now actually in Beijing uh, to celebrate the what they call a new world order. And uh, they've been very clear in their propaganda and their diplomatic uh, movements and also in their material support uh, for Iran and Hamas that uh, they're on Hamas's side of this. And uh, their propaganda is not just aimed at Israel, but it's aimed at the United States blaming us for the for the uh, for the crisis. And you know, Putin's number one goal right now is to convince the United States to abandon aid to Ukraine, and it seems to be working crazily enough. And I think that's I sort of agree with President Biden that these two things are linked. They're not the same, but they're linked because the people that are fighting against Israel and Ukraine and the West are working together. It's really as simple as that. But I. I sort of agree with uh, Shadi that I don't think the his speech changed any minds. I don't think that you know there are any MAGA Republicans in Congress who listened to President Biden talk last night. And we're like, oh yeah, you know what? He's right. And I think that uh, you know the real reason that they're combining the Israel aid with the Ukraine aid is because it's the only way they think they can get the Ukraine aid passed is to put uh, far right Republicans to the choice of uh, supporting Ukraine aid or voting against Israel aid. And of course, the MAGA people are wise to that. That's the, why they want to split it up. And if they do split it up, I think that Ukraine aid will have a very t hard time getting through the House and that will leave the Ukrainians uh, short in the middle of their offensive, which would be a tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, Shadi, you wrote in a column this week that as people assess the situation, a little intellectual humility is called for. Talk more about why that is needed uh, in in this century's old struggle, um, current iteration, the Israel-Hamas war. Yeah, well, I mean, what bothers me a lot about the whole debate here in America is, you know, there is an understandable blind fury, especially from the pro-Israel side after Hamas's brutal massacre of civilians. But it is really important for people to understand that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more broadly has been going on for decades. And if people are just tuning in, 
and think that they can have these very uncompromising positions where they say things like level that place. I mean, Lindsey Graham should be more aware of the region, but for him to say something like that, to basically say all bets are off, everything in Gaza's fair game, obliterate Gaza. It's that kind of language that I've been seeing increasingly. And that we should have learned after 9-11 that the whole point of terrorism is to provoke an overreaction. To lose our minds and lose our sense of proportion. So we have to be very careful not to fall into that. And intellectual humility, as I said in my column, is key to say that while we might think that we're right and we might feel certain that we're right, chance we might be wrong, that we're missing other parts of the argument. For the pro-Israel side, I think there's which which is the predominant side, I guess, in them in among American officials and among Republicans in particular, is to just simply be unaware anything relating to the Palestinians, to not even really be able to treat Palestinians as human beings. And um, to be, so I just do think there really has to be this extra effort um, going forward. Otherwise, what we're going to see is just such a, such a tragic, tragic situation in Gaza. And ultimately, that's what terrorists count on. If Gaza is obliterated, do we really think that the moderates are going to win out or that people are going to turn away from Hamas, Hamas will be able to point to the destruction and say, look what they did to your families, look what they did, so on and so forth. And you're going to have a new generation of people who only see violence as the answer. You know, I'm, I'm writing myself a, a note here to, for a follow-up question on this, because in listening to you, Shadi, the question I wrote down is, what is next for Gaza? I mean, we're sitting on the precipice of a ground of a ground invasion of the ID, by the IDF of 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 Gaza, but I don't know what the answer is for once that is over. What is next, and does the does Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu even have a plan? Josh, I saw your finger your finger go up. Do you have an answer? Oh yeah, no, I I I 100% agree with Shadi, and and I wrote in the Washington Post yesterday that the most important thing that's next is to let the food in, okay? Because uh, using food as a weapon of war is uh, illegal and unconscionable. And I interviewed the head of the World Food Program, a woman by the name of Cindy McCain, who's in Egypt right now, and she her message is let the food in, and the water and the medicine. And uh, you know I agree with Shadi that uh, starving two million people is a terrible way to fight extremism. And so is the seeds for endless conflict. So I think, you know, what what's next in the near term has to be the humanitarian aid gets into Gaza. Uh, and I don't think there's any room for sort of disagreement about that. What, uh, over the mid to long term, the Israeli plan seems to be to put the Palestinian Authority back into place after they do a, a, a cleaning. I don't think that's realistic. You know, the other, the other idea is to have some sort of international force in Gaza. I don't see how that's logistically possible either. And wiping out Hamas is a nice thing to say, but at some point those people are gonna need to uh, govern themselves. And uh, you know we have to think about what condition they're gonna be in and what that kind of leaders that will lead them to choose, mm -hmm. because in the end, sooner or later, it has to be uh, their choice. Shadi, I would love your, your perspective on what Josh just said. Look, I mean, this is actually one of those situations where there are no good options. I know that's a bit of a cliche in times of conflict, but, um, you know, 
So yes, the, the Israeli government is saying eliminate Hamas. Now, no one has actually really explained what that means in practice. You you um, decapitate the leadership, uh, kill kill them, arrest them, whatever it happens to be over the coming months. Um, Hamas isn't just its leadership. There are mid and low level um, cadres. There are members. There are sympathizers and supporters. I wouldn't want to overstate when people say, well, all of Gaza is Hamas. It's absurd, but it is a significant movement. So it's very hard to go in and say, well, we are going to completely erase Hamas and that is it and then start anew. That's never the way conflicts work. So um, I guess we'll have to wait and see in practice what Israelis really mean by that and how far they're willing to go. Um, the danger with bringing in the pa the Palestinian Authority, ideally, that would be a good option. But anyone who comes into Gaza now from outside, whether it's the West Bank or supported by our air our Arab partners is going to be seen as coming in behind Israeli bombs. There's a fundamental legitimacy question. How do you actually make the new leadership, whoever they are, legitimate to Palestinians in Gaza? These are just very, very thorny questions. And I worry that Israel is not necessarily going to be very constructive in that. But it does require then a very strong um, U.S. role that is balanced and actually takes Palestinian politics seriously. And that hasn't really been something the U.S. has done in in recent years. Um, so I, I don't know. It is worth I'll just mention one quote that I mentioned that I cited in my column just to show how unwilling the Biden administration was to deal with. Palestinians or really anything in the Middle East up until uh, up until quite recently, Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, eight days before Hamas's massacre, um, he boasted to an audience saying, quote unquote, the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. This was Biden's policy. Manage the Middle East. Don't address the deeper sources of conflict. Try to pivot as much as possible towards China and great power competition and outsourcing U.S. policy to Arab autocrats. And the idea was let them manage and keep things under control. But unless you have a real strategy, unless you have a vision for the Middle East, the deeper grievances are going to come out. This is a very messed up region. It's dominated by autocrats. People have been suppressed for such a long time. There has to be a vision. And my hope is that the Biden administration, after after all of this is is said and done, will actually try to present a vision to the region that is actually amenable, not only to Israelis, but also to at least some Palestinians. I'm not holding my breath, but that's my hope. Josh, Tyler said um, in the initial segment that the administration understood why um, the King of Jordan and the president of Egypt canceled uh, its meeting after the bombing of that hospital in Gaza, but you tweeted that their refusal to meet was, quote, completely unacceptable. Why? Well, I mean, as Shadi just laid out, the entire administration, Middle East policy is based upon the idea that we have these uh, Arab uh, partners who are going to help us manage it. And if they won't even meet with the U.S. president, well, what kind of help is that? Now, 
yes, in that moment, there was a lot of tension and because of the hospital bombing, et cetera. Uh, but when the president of the United States flies across the world to meet with you and then you don't show up, that there's no other way to 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 see that as but an insult, okay? And it doesn't sort of indicate that we're going to have a constructive uh, uh, back and forth with these countries in terms of actually getting to any real solutions to in the near term or the long term to this problem. By the way, we're giving them all this aid. By the way, we're ignoring all of their various internal atrocities. Why? Why? Because this uh, of this idea that that quiet equals stable. And, but quiet doesn't equal stable. As Shadi just said in his column, uh, quiet just masks the instability. So, you know, it's uh, I know Shadi agrees with me, but most people in Washington don't. They think, oh, well, you know, these autocrats are the best you could do. And, you know, they, they've got to respond to their uh, their their domestic uh, dislike of the United States. So, well, which is it? Do they run their countries or are they beholden to their domestic, uh, you know, uh, distaste of the United States? I mean, at some point we have to sort of look at this region and decide to be active leaders or, you know, forget about it, you know, go big or go home, you know, and this sort of uh, idea that, oh, well, we're going to have all of these destructive relationships with these Arab autocrats. But then when the when the chips are down, when the stuff hits the fan, they won't even show up for the meeting. Well, I think that should that really tells us all we need to know about their reliability and about the overall stability of that strategy. Um, am I wrong, Shadi, in in sort of wondering where are the Arab nations in terms of lending assistance or aid or being an active part of what's happening here? Yeah, are they an, are they an active part? I mean, obviously, there's a lot more they could do now, and you know, I think the real question will be during Gaza's reconstruction. And I hope there will be a full-on effort in that respect to rebuild Gaza when the time comes. I think that, you know, the, the, we should reasonably expect countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE to really step in with billions of dollars of aid, and the, and the U.S. should um, certainly encourage that. But mm -hmm. I, I do think there is a real problem here that these authoritarian regimes they dominate their countries and there is no real opposition in Saudi Arabia or the UAE and so forth. But th the Palestinian cause is really at is is really, you know, at the heart of a lot of Arab sentiment. And we might not like that or or want to deal with that, but it is simply a fact that, um, you know, for the last several decades, um, this has always been there. Sometimes it kind of tamps down and people focus on other things, but this is a profound Arab grievance. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the U.S. is perceived as not being very sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians. You're not going to change that overnight. So I don't I don't really know how to how to bring more Arabs on board. It's going to be an uphill battle, but it will require. Uh, the Biden administration to not be seen as so unequivocally one-sided in the broader conflict. Um, but it has been U.S. policy to be very, very pro-Israel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Is is the short is the short answer there? I I, I don't know, and I, I I appreciate the short answer because the moment I, I I asked you that question, I got the time cue that we had ninety seconds. Ninety oh, seconds okay. left. So we are we are over time. So Shadi Hamid, Josh Rogan, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. 
You too. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's first look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.